So we are back to the book of Mark for the Advent season. We spent some time in the book of Genesis this fall, and we're returning to the book of Mark for Advent season. We'll come back to it at Easter, working our way along. We're in Mark chapter 12. As you find your way to Mark chapter 12, I wonder if you are aware of a group called the American Atheists. It's an atheist activist group. Um, I wasn't really aware of them until this week, but I've seen their billboards. Every year around this time in December, they start these huge billboard campaigns promoting atheism. A couple of years ago, they had a, a massive 40 foot by 40 foot billboard in Times Square, and it was a digital billboard with motion graphics. And it had an image of a Santa Claus on there with sort of a mischievous look on his face. And the message would, would appear through the graphics, who needs Christ at Christmas? And then the graphics would change and it would say, nobody needs Christ at Christmas. And then it would change again and it would say, this Christmas, don't go to church. Celebrate family, food, fun, snow. And it listed out a bunch of other just generally positive things that we enjoy this time of year as a culture. And they've had other billboards. One of them uh, said something like, don't go to church this Christmas. You hate it. It's boring. And I'm sure many people probably felt like, well, there's some truth to that. Now, I say that just as a reminder that as we celebrate Christmas, as we begin celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people that reject our Christ. They reject the idea that there could be just one true religion. There's all these religions around the world. There can't just be one true one. They reject the notion that the God of the Bible could possibly exist, a God who is totally good and totally powerful, yet allows suffering to exist. Cannot be, and so they reject Christ. They reject the notion, perhaps even that absolute truth that anybody can know what's true is even possible. And so they reject Christ. Many, many people reject Christ. Now, my point bringing it up is not so that we can um, gripe about the atheists whom we love and whom we pray for and seek to share the gospel with and hope that they receive the same hope and, and peace and joy through Christ that we've received. My point bringing it up in preparation to get back into the book of Mark is to remind you that the rejection of Jesus Christ doesn't just happen through those kinds of billboards. It doesn't just happen among self-proclaimed atheists. It also happens among those who should be the most receptive to him, those who claim to be God's people. Even among those who identify themselves as Christians. The rejection, the resistance, rebellion against Jesus Christ doesn't just happen among those who decided to stay home this morning, but also among those who did the hard work of getting up and getting dressed and are sitting in church right now. Those in church pews. Maybe among us. Right now, this morning. And it's been this way since the beginning. And that's where we land back in the book of Mark in chapter 12. If you'll remember our, our trek through the book of Mark over the last couple years, 
the main ones that we see rejecting Jesus is not the sinners, it's the religious people. It was the religious Jews. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, they were drawn to Jesus. But as we, as we move through the passages before the one we're going to land in today in chapter 12, we just see group after group come in waves, these religious people coming and attacking Jesus and challenging him with skepticism and doubt and rejection. It's almost like Mike Tyson's punch-out. Does anybody remember Mike Tyson's punch-out? There's one opponent, if you beat them, then another opponent comes. If you beat them, another opponent comes. That's sort of what Jesus has been enduring as we enter into the text. So first, we saw the chief priests. So these were important leaders among the Jewish people. We don't have an exact equivalent in the Christian world, but you can sort of think of maybe megachurch pastors, influential leaders among God's people, rejecting Jesus. Then the scribes, these would have been the experts. For a parallel of the scribes, think about sort of the academics in the Christian world. These would have been the people like writing commentaries on the Bible, maybe professors, rejecting Jesus. Then you have the Pharisees. These are the legalists. Closest parallel to the Pharisees in the Christian world would be fundamentalist Christians, probably. Really hardcore about the rules. They rejected Jesus. Then you have the Herodians. These were the politically activated among God's people. Closest parallel in the Christian world are the politically activated in the Christian world. They were rejecting Jesus. And then in our text today, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, the Sadducees, it's their turn. The Sadducees appear before Jesus after he's defeated all these other arguments. The Sadducees, these were the really wealthy Christians. These were Christians who, I mean, not not Christians, these were Jews, I'm sorry. These were the really wealthy Jews. Closest parallel would be the wealthy Christians. Uh, The ones at church this morning where there's Mercedes and Teslas in the parking lot. They were rejecting Jesus as well. So all these religious Jews who should have been the most receptive to him were the most resistant to him. These Sadducees had some strange doctrinal beliefs that you should know about before we get into the passage. One, they only believed the first five books of the Bible were Scripture. The Pentateuch is the only thing that they would adhere to. The rest of it, they doubted. So they they stuck with the first five books of the Bible. Two, they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in demons or angels. And then the third thing I'll point out, and the most relevant to us this morning, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They just didn't buy it. All the other Jewish people believed in the resurrection, but they didn't. And as much as they compromised to maintain their lavish lifestyles, they were rigid on these doctrinal distinctives. And that's the point at which they come and challenge Jesus on their doctrinal distinction about the resurrection. Now, before we get into the text... We've seen already before we've got to the text, we're reminding ourselves that there's many different people that reject Jesus and many different reasons that people reject Jesus. It might be rational, like the American atheist. They don't believe the history or the science or the logic of Jesus, so they reject him. But it can also be religious, like those groups of Jews that I mentioned. They don't believe 
He fits their understanding of the scriptures. And they challenged their power in place, so they rejected Jesus. So we're going to consider the Pharisees. And while we do, we're going to have to ask ourselves the hard question of how might we be tempted as Christians in church this morning? How might we be tempted to reject or resist or rebel against Jesus Christ? So that's your job. Be opening up your heart for the Holy Spirit to perhaps reveal to you pockets of resistance, pockets of rejection, pockets of rebellion against our Lord Jesus Christ. So the text, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. That's the passage in view. We'll break it into three parts, the setup, the question, and the reply. First, the setup, verses 18 and 19. And Sadducees came to him, him is Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so they're appealing to a law back in Deuteronomy called leverate marriage. And it was a principle that God gave his people. And the idea was that if um, a couple was married and they had no children and the husband died so that the wife wouldn't be left vulnerable, so that the family name could continue on, and so that the family property could continue on to the right people, the man's brother, if he had a living brother, was to take that woman as his wife in the hopes that she would bear children through that relationship. Now, that seems really strange and foreign to us because our culture is way different from theirs. It would seem really strange if I died and pretending that Meredith and I didn't have kids, she automatically became the wife of my brother Aaron. You guys don't know Aaron. If you did, it would seem even stranger than it does just me talking about it. But that's the way their society worked, and it was uh, it was a, a practice that was about... Um, taking care of one another, making sure the family name, the family property, and the widow were okay. So they knew Jesus was in agreement that Moses taught that, and they knew that all the people in the crowd around would have been in agreement. Okay, Moses taught that, and we, we believe it to be a, a good practice, biblical. Now let's move on to the question, verses 20 through 23. There were seven brothers... The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So they slap the trap shut. They've got him. He's in front of this crowd. They know he believes in leverate marriage. They also know he believes in the resurrection, which they think is ridiculous. And now they've got him. He's going to look like a fool. Oh, wise teacher, enlighten us. You believe these two things at the same time. What happens in this case of the seven brothers and the widow? Does she get to just pick her favorite? There's seven of them. Do they pick a day of the week? 
and take turns? Do they all live in one big house at the same time? Do they fight over her? Enlighten us, O wise one. can imagine them nudging each other, winking at each other, feeling like they've really accomplished it. They thought that they were ridiculing Jesus' ignorance, but instead they were revealing their own ignorance. We'll move on to the third section, the reply. Verses 24 through 27. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Remember, they didn't even believe in angels either. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? This is one of your five books, is it not? Haven't you read this? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The Sadducees, in their rigid knowledge of their unique doctrinal stance about the resurrection, had missed two huge things. And in their tricky question, they have revealed that they were pretty ignorant about Scripture, even their own five books that they claimed to be God's Word, and they were pretty ignorant about the power of God. It showed itself in two mistakes. In verse 25, they showed that they did not understand the concept of resurrection at all. Verse 25, Jesus corrects them, "...for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage." but are like angels in heaven. So they had this sort of straw man that they set up to try to make Jesus look foolish that didn't even accurately represent what he believed about the resurrection. Their idea that they put forth was that the resurrection life was just exactly like this life, but longer. Everything's going to continue exactly like this, just forever. Now, some of you wish that was the case. Some of you are really thankful it's not the case. Many of the Jews probably did think that that was what resurrection was. Many of us in this room may have had that idea that that's what the resurrection is. But Jesus corrects that. He says, no human marriage, earthly marriage, during the here and now is a temporary thing. It's a temporary picture of a, an eternal reality. And when Jesus Christ, the groom, comes for his bride, the church, All that marriage was meant to fulfill will be consummated fully. And in heaven, there won't be marriage, giving it marriage, getting married, being married. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be more glorious than what you're even proposing. Go back and read the Bible before you come and try to trick me about this. You don't even understand what we mean when we say the word resurrection. They didn't understand the concept of resurrection, and they didn't understand the character of God. Verses 26 and 27, he continues to correct them. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
So they would have known this passage well, Exodus 3. Many of you know it well, having grown up in Sunday school. Moses is out in the wilderness. He's a shepherd at this point in his life, so he's out there with his flock. And he smells something burning. And he looks around and he sees there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed, it's just burning. And from the bush, he hears God call to him, Moses. And as God calls to him and identifies himself, he does so in part by saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God. As though the relationship is current, not past tense. Now that phrase, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob came to be sort of shorthand for the fact that God is a faithful God who always has kept his promises and always will keep his promises. Now, many of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still in the process of being fulfilled. But the fact that he is still their God, he is still going to fulfill those promises. His interaction with them is not over because their earthly life has ended. There will be a resurrection. So the Sadducees see publicly in front of the crowds that they were hoping to impress that they had built their rejection of Jesus Christ on a faulty and incomplete knowledge of Scripture and a faulty and incomplete knowledge of God. And there's no evidence that as a group they ever really changed their minds, that they ever listened to Jesus' rebuke. We see them again later in the book of Acts still causing the same kind of trouble. And as fascinating as these specific doctrinal points are, marriage in the afterlife, no marriage after the resurrection, what's the resurrection going to be like? As much as, as fascinating as those things are, I don't think any of those are really the main point of the passage. I think the main point of the passage, in its context with these other battles he's had with these other people rejecting him, is that last sentence there. You are quite wrong. I told my kids last night as I was getting this into an outline, I said, guess what I'm going to title my sermon, my first Christmas sermon this year? You are quite wrong. Does that sound like a good Christmas sermon title to you? In the NIV, you are badly mistaken. I especially like the King James Version. Ye therefore do greatly err. Ye therefore do greatly err. It's on this point, this last sentence, that we all find common ground. The ancient Sadducees, the modern atheists, the Doolins Grove church member, you, I, we, we all find common ground here. And let me explain what I mean. Do any of you remember, and you don't need to shout it out, but think about it. Do any of you remember the content of Jesus' first recorded message or sermon? thing that he proclaimed in the book of Mark. Do you remember back that far? It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. After he's baptized and he had his time in the wilderness, he came with a message. This was the message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. 
repent and believe in the gospel. That word repent literally means to change your mind. It's a change of mind. In other words, you're quite wrong. And you need to change your mind. You need to change. You need to repent. You need to turn. It's always from the beginning been a centerpiece of the message of Jesus Christ. A little over 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther wrote down all of his misgivings based on Scripture related to the Catholic Church, and he nailed them to a cathedral door. There were 95 of them. It started the Protestant Reformation. It was a big deal. And the first thing he put on there was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The idea is that as a Christian, we're always being told, you're quite wrong. And so we're always changing. We're always being disciplined, constantly being reproved, corrected, and therefore transformed and built up into something new. And this might seem like a bad thing at first, if this is a foreign idea to you, but it's not. Because we know that God is good and that he loves us and that he knows what's best. He has proven to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us because he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us so that we could be forgiven and cleaned up and reconciled to him. So we can completely trust him when he says, son, daughter, I love you, and I need to tell you, you are quite wrong. As we celebrate Christmas, we don't want to celebrate like the American atheists, not because we hate them, but because we do believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the centerpiece of our lives. So we don't just want to celebrate family and friends and fun and food and snow. We do enjoy all those things. But what we most need, perhaps, is to renew our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord, the one with absolute ownership rights over us. We might need to renew our pledge to listen to him when he says to us, you're quite wrong. It might mean for some among us that we just need to start listening at all. We just need to start listening. need to get into the Word and start seeing what He has to say. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a reader. I would suggest you find somebody that you respect and ask them to help you because you got to be in here. It might mean for some of us that we need to turn from some sin or folly that we know we need to turn from. Sometimes it's possible as a Christian to live in sin and feel the discomfort of it, but keep forcing it down, justifying ourselves. And maybe this Christmas God would say, son, daughter, I've been telling you for a while now, you're quite wrong. You need to change and repent. We need to adjust our thinking, our priorities, our behavior, our spending, our living all the time because we're always being reformed as Christians. I had a class, I can't remember now which class it was, but one of my assignments was to get back down to just the bare basic fundamentals of what it means to be Christians, what it means to be the church. 
And down underneath all the activities and everything, down, down, down in the Scriptures, right at the bottom or near the bottom of the foundation of all of this is just simply trusting and following Jesus together. And at the core of that is repentance. That ought to be one of the most common aspects of our life together is change, repentance, growth, learning, giving up old ideas that we now see aren't scripturally sound, giving up old practices that we see aren't honoring to the Lord. You know, if church is boring, if being a Christian is boring, maybe it's because we're just not listening when Jesus is telling us you're quite wrong and it's time to grow. It's kind of like a gym membership. Some people treat Christianity like I treated my gym membership. I had it. I had the little keychain tag so I could get in. I didn't really do anything with it. I mean, if I had gone to Planet Fitness and just sat there for an hour and just sort of looked at what's going on and watched people work out and then went home, of course that would be boring. That's not what Christianity is. But often we slip into that. We just sort of go, we're sitting here, and I'm going to eat lunch later, that'll be good. <sighs> Sunday school is going to be boring if you don't think that the Lord's talking to you. Small group is going to be awkward and weird if the people there don't believe that the Lord's talking to them. Reading your Bible is going to be dry as dirt if you don't believe the Lord's speaking to you. But he is, and he loves you so much. He loves you so much. But being in relationship with him involves repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no Christianity. And when's the last time you sensed through the Word and the Holy Spirit the Lord saying to you, you're quite wrong? If it's been decades, that is a real problem. Because this is, unless you're quite perfect, this is just daily life for us as Christians. Just like little children should expect their mom and dad to be correcting them, to be teaching them, we should expect this. There's nothing more dull and exhausting than a lifestyle of just resisting the Lord's word and his conviction. And there's nothing more exhilarating than responding to it. There's nothing more exhilarating. It's not just because I've gotten nerdy in my middle-agedness. There's nothing more exhilarating than getting up in the morning. If I can do it, if I can get up in the morning before the kids and the responsibilities awaken, and it's just me and my Bible and my journal and quiet to see what's the Lord got to say to me today. And often it is, Matt, you're quite wrong about this. And I'm going to help you grow. I'm going to help you change. I'm going to help you repent. I'm going to help you turn. There's nothing more exciting than a lunch conversation with somebody or over coffee when the both of you have been being molded by the Lord and you can catch up with one another and be like, man, the Lord revealed this to me through this passage I read the other day. And so I'm trying to turn my whole financial world upside down. I'm still trying to figure it out. Have you ever experienced anything like that? There's nothing more exciting than that as a Christian. That's what our fellowship is becoming, will become.
as we grow softer to God's Word together. Hearing you're quite wrong is not bad, it's good, and it's one of the central blessings of being a Christian. So, this Christmas, let's drop any aspect of rejection or resistance or rebellion that we may be harboring. Let's renew our faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and let's embrace this exhilarating daily lifestyle of repentance, of growth, of change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us not to be like the Sadducees and these other religious leaders who just got so hardened into shape around our preconceived notions but help us to be soft and pliable in your hands. In any way in which you see that we are quite wrong, we invite you to convict us and reveal it to us and make it clear. Only please give us the strength and courage to fess up to it and be honest about it. Lord, let us be a dynamic fellowship of just constant spiritual growth, change, and repentance for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.